You see him. Let me invite you to take again your copy of God's Word and turn with me uh, to the book of Matthew. Our text this morning can be found on page 828. If you're using the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, uh, we return uh, to our study in Matthew. Uh, continue to move forward. It's my plan and goal uh, to be done with Matthew uh, in time for an Advent series. Uh, we will see if that actually happens. Uh, so uh, that's our goal. We're moving uh, bit by bit through the book. Uh, we are returning to this section where Jesus has entered Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. And he is in the midst of a lengthy, multi-chapter long conversation and confrontation with the spiritual leaders of the day uh, and in Jerusalem. So he is talking with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He is confronting them. And there's this one theme of authority. We have seen him tell multiple parables on the theme of authority. And now in chapter 22, where we saw three parables, now we have three questions. And the people are coming to Jesus, asking him these questions. We saw two weeks ago a question about paying taxes. We see this week a question about marriage. We're going to see next week a question about the law. And finally, Jesus says, enough. Enough of you asking me questions. It's time for me to ask you a question. We'll get there uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, our question today comes from uh, the Sadducees. It is narrowly about the topic of marriage. It is more importantly about the topic of the resurrection itself. So would you follow along with me in your copy of God's word, Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Do you join me in prayer? Our Lord, wherever we come from this morning... I pray you would speak to us the sweet and simple truths of the resurrection of the dead. If we come, O oh God, as skeptics, I pray you would shatter our skepticism. You would plant in us the simple seed of faith. Lord, if we come as those who are doubting and those who are scared, I pray that you would breathe life 
into that seed of faith that is among us. It would bear fruit unto eternal life. Lord, I pray wherever we are, you would speak these simple truths and we would leave hoping, believing, and trusting that you indeed are not God of the dead, but God of the living. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last month, one of my daughters was in a class with a bunch of other uh, teenage students. It was a driver's ed class. And so you can imagine all these kids, 14, 15, 16 years of age, all getting to know each other and hanging out and hopefully learning how to drive, right, uh, for the week. And there was one student, a boy, and he had a T-shirt one day, and it had the word Christian on it and a Bible verse or something like that on his shirt. And some of the other students looked at the boy and said, you don't really believe that, do you? Why would you believe something like that? You imagine that context, right? You're just sleepy-eyed. You've showed up. You just threw on a T-shirt to show up for driver's ed class, and all of a sudden, the spotlight's on you. Why do you believe that mess? Why do you believe that junk? It's all a bunch of lies. It's all a bunch of hypocrisy, right? My daughter said that he simply gave a beautiful short testimony of how God had worked in his life. What a story. What a hope we have for our own teenagers and ourselves, right? It's not just teenagers that face those skeptical questions. It's us too. It's pastors too. What, you really, that's your job, right? You, you professionally believe in that stuff, right? How do we answer those skeptical questions? Why would you even believe that? We're not the first generation to get those questions. We won't be the last to get those questions. We see that very question here in Matthew's gospel. And I want to help you, as the Lord helps us, know how to answer that question. Why do we believe what we believe? And what's bedrock here, the bedrock factual answer, is the truth of the resurrection. What do we do with this sort of pebble in the shoe of the secular view of the world that there is an empty tomb, that a man died and and rose again? And what does that mean for our faith, and what does it mean for how we talk about our faith? Jesus encountered men who thought his view of the resurrection was ridiculous. And so he shows us how to answer that skeptic, critical question. I want to show you today not only how we answer it mentally, but how our hearts are brought to believe and rejoice in the truth of the resurrection. Simply this, take heart, Christian, for your resurrection from the dead is sure. Take heart, for your resurrection from the dead is sure. Now, why should we believe the resurrection? Jesus gives us two answers. I'm going to give you those same two answers from this text. Look at verse 29. Here's how he responds. We'll come back to the question in a moment. His response, you are wrong because you know neither. So we got two things coming. Neither the scriptures, that's number one, nor the power of God, number two. So here's our two points. Why do we believe in the resurrection? Because of the power of God and because of the promise of God. That's what the scriptures teach, the promise of God. We believe in the resurrection from the dead because of the power of God, because of the promise of God. Let's look at each of those. The power of God. The Sadducees come with a question about the resurrection. Now, what do our kids learn in Sunday school about the Sadducees, right? They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection, right? Maybe you didn't grow up in Sunday school and you didn't hear that, right? (laughs) 
when you read the Bible, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. All right. So this is what we're dealing with is a group of people within the Jewish faith. The Sadducees are the, the leaders in this historical period. They're sort of the top dogs, right? They're sort of more, they have more influence and say than the Pharisees do that disagree with them on some stuff, primarily the resurrection from the dead. So the Sadducees are men and women of Jewish faith who do not believe that after we die, there is anything. Not anything for the body, not anything for the soul. Death is, is it. That's what they believe. And they're very religious people. So they come to Jesus to ask him this question. And it's not a, Jesus, we were wondering the answer to this question. Right? It's not one of those. Jesus rarely gets those, right? They're trying to trick him. They're trying to show that belief in the resurrection is silly. They want Jesus to look like a fool in this moment. They want to ask him a gotcha question. And he said, well, I don't know the answer to that. I can't answer that. And they think they've come up with a silver bullet of a question. This is it, right? I mean, Jesus, why do you hear this? There's no way you'll believe in the resurrection anymore. What they do is they quote from Old Testament law. Verse 24, teacher Moses said, Moses, that's referring to uh, the books written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible. There's a law there, an Old Testament law, that a brother who survives the death of his brother is then called to marry the widow, right? To provide for her in a, in a culture and a time when it was very hard for uh, widows to, to, to be provided for, right? So this is sort of a, a way in God's law to protect and guard uh, the needs of particularly needy people. What they do is they take this idea that's sort of rarely practiced anyway, and they sort of dial it out so that it looks absurd, right? Uh, I mean, they say... Uh, Verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us. Were there really, guys? Hold on. What's, did this really happen? Why don't you go back in the Sadducees sort of list and say, did you really have seven brothers? And they all died and married the same woman. I, I don't think it really happened. It doesn't really matter. They think they've got the silver bullet of a question for Jesus. Because apparently this has happened. The following of the law, they all die. And then comes the resurrection. The, the resurrection, they're saying, right? And what's going to happen? You've got seven husbands and one wife. And what's that going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth? You don't have an answer, do you, Jesus? They're thinking to themselves. Well, of course he's got an answer. He always has an answer, right? Verse 29, his answer, you are wrong. Period. We should stop right? the sermon right there, right now. You don't ever want Jesus saying that to you, right? You're wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So his first answer is the power of God. Their mistake, and a mistake that we often think, is that the, the resurrected life, the return of Christ, the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, is sort of a lot like this life here now. It just doesn't stop. And maybe it's a little bit better, right? Right, the food tastes a little bit better, right? Your limp has sort of gone away, right? You can go play ball again, right? It's just a, a little bit better. The problem is that the Bible teaches the new heavens and new earth aren't just a little bit better. They're a lot bit better. They're radically better and radically different than any experience we have in this life right now. Here's how Paul describes our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth in 1 Corinthians 15. 
He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. That means what has died and goes, in, goes into the grave is perishable. Some of you know that, right? You've started to, you've passed your expiration date, we might say, right? You've started to perish a little bit. You know what that feels like. What is raised from the dead is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, that means this human body goes into the grave What describes this human body is weakness. What is raised is in power. And finally, there is a natural, what is shown as a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's not talking about our spirits. That's talking about our physical bodies are animated, are made alive by spiritual power to live forever. And the reason this happens to our bodies is because we're going to a place It is so radically different from this place that our bodies there, these bodies won't work there. About 20 years ago, uh, I was invited to a wedding in Minnesota. Uh, I'm a southerner. I've never been really north of the Mason-Dixon line, right? It was in February. I was a groomsman. I thought, I've heard it's cold in Minnesota. I'll just pack a a hoodie, right? That's literally all I packed, (laughs) right? Jeans, T-shirt, and a hoodie. And I get out of the plane, and it is like 20 below uh, wind chill. It is the most miserable weekend. I got sick. I was so underdressed with a bunch of other Southerners who were so underdressed. We were not fit, right? Our bodies, our preparation was not fit for that environment. And what we read in the Bible is that the new heavens and the new earth is so much better, it's so much realer, if we can say, that these perishable, weak, powerless bodies can't even function there. And by the power of God in bringing a new heavens and a new earth down raises us from from perishable to imperishable. He gives us these bodies that work and enjoy and rejoice and worship him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. In order to enjoy it, we need those new bodies. How does he do it? By the power of God. I don't know how to tell you how he is going to reconstitute bodies that were buried thousands of years ago. I have no idea how that's going to happen. But God, the power of God that creates Adam and Eve from the dust doesn't need all that much to give us our new bodies for the new heavens and the new earth. Those bodies, one author says, are a wholly new kind of life. Someone else says, We are recognizably the same, but profoundly different. And the the, the picture of that in 1 Corinthians is of a seed to a plant. You could recognize an acorn goes with an oak tree. They don't really look like each other, right? These little bodies are like acorns. And our new bodies are like oak trees. You know it's the same, but it's profoundly different. Now, what does this have to do with marriage? Jesus is getting to the point about Marriage, if that's what life's like in the resurrection, what about marriage in the resurrection? Well, think about marriage in this life. Let's start there. That's easier for us to conceptualize, right? Marriage in this life. Marriage, the Bible tells us, is a temporary institution. There's a reason that in our vows, we vow until death do us part. Jim just read from Psalm 45, description of the king and his wife, Right, the king and, and his bride, which is a picture 
ultimately of Christ and his church, the great wedding, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Our marriages in this temporary life, as Luke renders it in his version of this story, this age versus the age to come, it's a copy of a greater marriage. It's a shadow of a greater marriage to come. I mean, think about why the Bible tells us we're married in the first place. What does the Bible say about why we're married together? Well, first it tells us we need help. We read that in Genesis. Right? It's not good for man to be alone. We need help. We can't do this on our, on our own. And God in his kindness gives the gift of marriage for mutual help. We also read in Genesis that we're married so we can have kids. Right? Be fruitful and multiply. Right? And fill the earth. That is a, a purpose of marriage in this age. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7... That marriage guards us from temptation. All these purposes that are good in this world, good in this age, good in this life. That marriage is God's created good in a fallen world. Two weeks ago we saw government is a created good. This week we see marriage is a created good. That God has given it as a, as a gift, good for his people, good for the world around us. But those purposes for marriage in this age aren't really needed in the age that is to come. Have you ever thought about that? There won't be any kids born in the new heavens and the new earth. The full number of the people of God will be there. You don't really need help in the sense that we need help today with our own weakness, right? We'll be raised in power. Do we need help battling temptation? Not in the new heavens and new earth, we don't. Praise God, we don't, right? We will be married in heaven, but not to our spouse. We'll be part of the great marriage that goes for eternity. We are the bride of Christ. We married to him and with him in peace and joy and happiness forever and ever. Jesus says, like the angels. Do you look at the angels and think to yourself, why would I want to be like one of those? No, you think, man, that would be great to be an angel, right? What are the angels? What is the relationship like between the angels and God? They commune with him. They serve him perfectly. One author says they serve God without hesitation, without weariness, without sin. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The Bible tells us that we will know our spouse in heaven. We will know one another in heaven in a deeper and more intimate way than we know one, one another in this life. But that's not only for your spouse, that's for, for everyone in the people, amongst the people of God. Jesus tells us that in the resurrection, we will be like angels, neither marrying or given in marriage. Now, I wonder how that makes you feel. Probably depends on your situation, right? If God has uh, given you and ordained for you a good healthy, God-glorifying marriage, then it might make you feel a little bit sad, right? It might make you think, well, I love to go uh, on vacations with my spouse, right? That's part of the fun part of being experiencing new stuff together, right? So why would I want to go to heaven without my spouse, my partner? Let me assure you that you will not be sad with whatever God gives you in the new heavens and the new earth. You will not be lacking or missing anything. If you have a good marriage today, I would encourage you to give gratitude and praise to God that he has given that to you in this season, in this life. You will not be lacking in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Maybe you're not worried about lacking anything. Maybe actually you're in a difficult marriage now. You're in a hard marriage. You're in a bad marriage. And you hear this and you think, that sounds good. I laugh, but it's true. Some of y'all know it's true, right? You think, I can endure today, I can endure in this life, but not for all of eternity. Having this view of marriage and those relationships for heaven, doesn't it help us face challenges today? Does it help us understand the stewardship God has given us with these days and these relationships and this blink of an eye life that we have in perspective of all of eternity? Maybe you're not in a good marriage or a bad marriage at all. Maybe you aren't married. Maybe you've never been married. Maybe you doubt that you will be married in this life. I hope you hear these verses with some measure of hope. You're not missing out. That God has designed for you the greatest marriage in all of the world. (laughs) That you have not somehow missed something. That God has not somehow forgotten you. But that you will dwell at peace and enjoy with him in marriage for all of eternity. This reality keeps our relationships in this life in perspective, doesn't it? We have a tendency to idolize our relationships, to idolize our marriages such that they can give us joy and they can take away joy from us. But this truth keeps our relationships, whatever they are, our relational status, right? Whatever that is in this life is kept in perspective in light of eternity. And the gospel hope tells us to take heart because a better marriage awaits you in heaven. No matter where you're at, no marriage, bad marriage, good marriage, a better one awaits you in heaven. The Christ, by his gospel, has ransomed a bride for himself, you, women and men, to be united perfectly with him forever and ever. And there is nothing missing. And there is nothing sad. And there is nothing amiss about that great gift from God. And it's all because of the power of God. He alone can do it. Now, Jesus addresses the question, of course, God can raise the dead. God can do anything. But will he? It's a different question, isn't it? Yeah, he can do it, but will he actually do it? And I want you to see, secondly, in this verse, or in this section, the promise of God. Why do we believe in the resurrection? Because of the power of God, number one. Because of the promise of God, number two. Jesus calls these guys out, saying they don't know the scriptures. If somebody showed up here and pointed at me as the pastor and said, you, you don't know your Bible, I'd feel pretty called out, right? They're called out by this. I mean, he puts them on notice that the Bible teaches the resurrection. How can you have missed it, as if he's saying to the Sadducees? Now, you may have never thought particularly, how does the Old Testament teach the resurrection? I mean, it's clear in the New Testament, it happens. <laughs> what about the Old Testament? So we go back and look at just a, a couple of scriptures, a, a kind of a survey of where we see it in the Old Testament. We famously see it in Job. Remember Job, the sufferer, Job who has everything in this life taken away from him. Job, who will say and pray famously, I know my Redeemer lives. In my flesh, I shall see God. He knows that something is coming where he will see God. Remember the story of King David. When King David has 
uh, a son who is very sick and dies at a very young age. And remember what King David says. He says, he's not going to come back to me, but I will go to him. Because there's life. There's life after death. King David knew it. He confessed it. We read in the book of Psalms that as the psalmist struggle with, with oppression, with persecution, even with death itself, they pray with great confidence. Psalm 49, 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the power of death. God ransoms, he snatches back souls from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. The prophets looked forward to it. The prophets looked forward to the day of the Lord, a day of resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19, we read, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What a picture. The earth will give birth to the dead. Hosea I'm sorry, Daniel, looking forward to it at the end of his prophecy. He says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament is riddled. It is full of allusions, of prophecies, of confidence in the resurrection that is to come. So that when we see Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus and he sits with those guys who don't know who he is and don't know what he's done and he tells them all of the Old Testament that applies to him both to his death and to his ascension and entering into glory. All of it. The Sadducees are blind to. Now here's the thing about the Sadducees. They held not to the entire Old Testament. They've already quoted Moses because what they really believed, the, the part of the Old Testament that trumped everything else, was the Pentateuch, the first five books. So they might be thinking, well, Jesus, you can name all those other scriptures in the world, but not, that's not what our Bible says. So Jesus gets right to the point. His really only scripture reference here gets right to the point of their objection, and that is found in the covenant relationship between God and his people. Look at verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? This is Exodus 3, the burning bush, right? As God is commissioning Moses to go and redeem his people out of slavery. God says, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not, <clears throat> excuse me, God of the dead, but of the living. Now think for a second. Are those guys dead or alive when God's talking to Moses from the bush? They're all dead. A long time dead, right? Uh, dust and bones is all that's left of them. And yet, Jesus says that's an argument. That phrase that God uses proves he is God, not of the dead, even though they are dead, but the God of the living. How does that work? Think for a second on what God is doing in Exodus chapter 3. He is going to redeem his people. He is going to fulfill his promises to bring his people back unto the land that he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God, you see, when God makes promises, they are promises made by an eternal God. 
Therefore, they do not change. Our promises, we often make empty promises, right? God never makes an empty promise. An eternal God that enters into an eternal covenant relationship with his people does not stop or change. When God promises that he will love his people, that he will provide for his people, that he will protect his people, like you could take that to the bank, right? The problem is those people died. So what do we do? God says he will be with and protect his people always, no matter what, and yet those people are dead. So either... God is a liar or they're not actually dead, right? Because if God is telling the truth, if God is a covenant God who will protect his people and God is an eternal God, those promises don't change. And that means God has promised to his own children, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and you and me, that he is with us forever. The promises of God do not end at death. Unlike marriage, God does not promise us something, good stuff, until death do us part. No, the promise is forever. Death is not the final word. He is not the God of the dead. That would be pointless. He is God of the living. See, the resurrection from the dead is something incredibly powerful. You have to to go beyond science to think about how God is going to reconstruct and reanimate bodies from all nations and times, right? How is God going to do that? I don't know, by his almighty power. But it's not just powerful. It's incredibly personal. Because God has promised you, Christian, that he will raise you from the dead. Not just this idea that God's mighty and powerful and he can do all this stuff. That's pretty amazing anyway, right? But it's for you. That you enter the grave knowing and trusting God will raise you back again. You go believing the personal promise of God. Not just overall for his people, but for you. We face death. We can face death. Trusting the character and the promises of God. The God who never changes. The God whose word never breaks. If death separated us forever from our covenant God, it would make God a liar. And God is not a liar. So death does not have the final word. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It is pointless. It is worthless. Just playing a silly game. None of it matters, right? But because of the power of God, And the promises of God, we trust and we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus, as if he's saying to us, look, if y'all don't believe me, just hang with me a couple more days, right? This is Tuesday. Keep watching what's going to happen before the end of the week. Because he's going to go first. He is going to go into the grave. His perishable, weak body will go to the cross to bear the sins of all of his people, will go to the grave, a true and real death, where he will remain under the power of death for three days. And he's raised again, the perishable, imperishable, weakness, power, and glory. And in his resurrection, he promises new life 
by the power of God that is beyond any of our dreams. We close with this. Imagine a group of friends that go out to a lake. Hot summer day like this, they go to swim and play at the lake, and they find a cliff they want to jump off of into the lake, right? Looks like great fun. Sounds like something we all want to do, right, in our childhood. Jump off a cliff into the lake, but they get there and look down, and they get kind of scared. You can't see below the water. You don't know what's there. They're all thinking, you go first. No, you go first, right? No, you go first. Someone says, oh, don't worry. I know the water's clear down there, but you can't see anything. It just looks black and scary. And no one wants to go. All the assurances in the world, all the promises in the world aren't going to get you to jump into that lake. But then one of the boys says, I'll go first. He jumps in and you're thinking to yourself as his head goes underwater, well, there he goes. We're never going to see him again, right? And the seconds go by and you begin to worry and fear. And then just when all hope is lost, he pops up on the other side, grinning and smiling, right? Big grin on his face. He made it through to the other side. Jesus goes first. Jesus goes into the grave first. The scary abyss that terrifies us, he goes first. And he comes up grinning and smiling on the other side. Take heart, Christians. Your resurrection is sure. And soon, by the power and promises of God, we will be there smiling with him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are a people of little faith. We are a people that are so distracted and consumed by this age and this temporal life. Lord, we give you thanks that you give us what we need in this world. You give us food for our our perishing bodies. You give many of us spouses that help us along the way. You give strength to our weary beings, and yet somehow we get so consumed by this world. I pray, Lord, in these moments you would give us an abiding glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth that you would remind us wherever we're at in this life, wherever we're at with our marriages and our relationships, wherever we're at with our bodies, wherever we're young or old, whether death feels like it's around the corner or it feels like it is never going to come, that you would give us that seed of faith to trust in the promise of the resurrection. You would restore and renew our fainting hope in Christ. We would face this week and we would face that which is to come with faith and the power and the promises of our God, in whose name we pray.